This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. This episode of Counselor Toolbox has been sponsored in part by Foundations Events. As the behavioral health industry evolves, the need for collaboration is greater than ever. Join Foundations Events at the Innovations in Behavioral Healthcare Conference, June 20th and 21st in Nashville. Focused on listening to both the patient and provider, this conference offers two days of sessions that follow the journey from meeting the patient where they are to helping them find recovery. Special pricing for licensed clinicians is available with the opportunity to earn over 20 CEUs. Visit foundationsevents.com slash counselor toolbox for more information and to register today. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on non-pharmacological pain management, specifically using cognitive behavioral therapy for pain, otherwise known as CBT-CP. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and I will be facilitating this discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about types of pain. You know, there are more than one type. Impact of pain on sleep, the HPA axis, and mood, so why pain is something that we might see in our practices. We'll explore treatment options for chronic pain, specifically CBT interventions. And as I told you before class, if you want to stay after the summary, I will be going through some of the medical interventions for pain, but that's not what this class was covering, so um, I'm going to leave those until the end. This is based in part on a best practice put out by the Department of Veterans of Affairs, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Chronic Pain Among Veterans. So we're going to be extrapolating from that. According to the CDC, more than 20% of U.S. adults have chronic pain. When we start thinking about the number of people who are in our practices who are experiencing anxiety and depression and that sort of thing who have chronic pain, that number goes up. Therefore, you can roughly estimate that at least a third, if not half or more, of the patients that you're seeing experience chronic pain. Chronic pain is defined as pain that lasts for more than three months, may have a known or unknown cause, and chronic pain, when I say it lasts for more than three months, it's kind of like depression. It's prevalent more often than not. There can be some times of symptom remission. Um, persists beyond expected healing time or despite treatment, and is best conceptualized as a condition to be managed rather than cured. Some people with chronic pain, like rheumatoid arthritis, 
arthritis or fibromyalgia are likely never going to of their pain. However, we can help them manage it to a tolerable level so they can have the highest quality of life possible. There are three types of pain. Nociceptive pain is pain that is caused by damage to body tissues and is based on input by specialized cells called nociceptors. Most nociceptive pain is musculoskeletal and is often described as aching or deep when you twinge a muscle or have a neck ache or something like that. Um, arthritis, gout, tendonitis, bursitis, and interestingly, pelvic floor disorders. And people who've had babies, um, who've had hysterectomies, who've had something going on with the pelvic floor can develop pelvic pain, as well as um, hernias. That would be another type of musculoskeletal problem. Neuropathic pain occurs when there's nerve damage that typically involves the, either the peripheral or central nerves, and it's often described as burning, shooting, tingling, or electric. Examples of this would be radicular pain, such as the radiating pain down your, down your leg if you've got sciatica. Uh, phantom limb pain if someone has had a um, amputation. Fibromyalgia, peripheral neuropathy, which is very common in diabetes. Some people who have a spinal tap or an epidural, sometimes a nerve gets nicked in there um, occasionally, and some people will complain of ongoing pain months or even years after that procedure. And carpal tunnel is another common one we hear. The nerves that go into the, into the hand are getting pinched in that um, carpal tunnel, and that can cause pain for some people. It, there are a lot of different types of pain that our clients experience, and sometimes they may be presenting for pain, but other times they may be presenting with high levels of anxiety and depression and fatigue and, oh yeah, oh by the way, I have this pain thing over here that bothers me all the time. We want to help them see the connection between their chronic pain and potentially any of their mood symptoms or physical symptoms that they might be experiencing. Headache pain is your third type of pain, and I'm not going to go super deep into it, but there are lots of different causes of headaches. There are tension headaches, cluster headaches, migraine headaches. Traumatic brain injury can cause headaches, and those headaches can last for six or more, or more months. Now, we think of traumatic brain injury as something people get in combat or something people get in car accidents, but it can also happen to youth, for example, who play football, they can have traumatic brain injury. Anything that causes a concussion can cause problems. You can have cervicogenic pain or headaches, which is pain referred from the neck and the, from problems in the neck into the head. You know, you tighten up your muscles because your neck hurts so much. And medication overuse or rebound headaches. People who take a lot of medication for headaches, when that medication wears off, the blood vessels may all of a sudden dilate or constrict, um, and based on whether they're using or, or de detoxing from the medications, and it can cause a headache. So some treatment options that are not drug-oriented. TENS units, and these are great for both musculoskeletal, the neuro, um, uh, nociceptive pain, as well as neuropathic pain, that nerve pain. TENS units, you can actually get over-the-counter now. You can get them on Amazon. They're not that expensive. You put on little patches, and you turn them on, and it stimulates the nerve, and it feels like somebody kind of tapping at you. Uh, and it can be very useful for blocking the 
nerves from sending pain sensations, which allows the body to relax, especially if it's a muscular, allows the body to relax and may help stop muscle spasms and those sorts of things. TENS units are great for muscle pain. Um, firm believer, obviously. Massage can be really good. You can't always access a massage therapist, but there are massage balls, there are acupressure mats, there are, you know, your roommate. You can uh, use tennis balls and do massage. You can go on YouTube and find all kinds of ways to do deep tissue massage. Physical therapy, and obviously with deep tissue massage or any sort of activity, clear it with your doctor first. Physical therapy usually has to be um, ordered by your doctor, but that can help rebalance if there are muscle imbalances that are causing the pain. Stretching can help. A lot of times when we have pain, we guard, and if you're guarding, you're probably not keeping good posture and alignment, which can lead to kinked up muscles and all kinds of other kind of cascade pains. Paying attention to ergonomics can help a lot with pain. If the person, for example, has chronic headaches, if they pay attention to their ergonomics, so by the end of the day, they're not like this, hunched over at their desk or, you know, doing all kinds of things that are causing neck tension, which may increase their likelihood of developing a migraine, they're going to be better off. So we're going to look at prevention as well as intervention. Heat and cold can be used. Depending on what feels, generally the doctor tells me whatever feels better to you. I tend to like cold better, but whatever. Chiropractics can be useful for some uh, pain that is out there. Acupuncture and acupressure. Some people aren't cool with the needles and they want to do acupressure. Acupressure, you can learn how to do at home and, you know, you can do acupressure on yourself. There are a lot of acupressure points for migraines, for example, which can be really useful. Again, we are not certified or licensed in either one of these, so we're going to refer people to clinicians who are and or they can go on YouTube and or somewhere else and learn about those things. And yoga and Tai Chi. Both yoga and Tai Chi focus on deep breathing, and which triggers a relaxation response and increases GABA and serotonin, both of which help with pain management. But yoga and Tai Chi also emphasize a focus on your form and your posture. For many people, part of their pain comes from poor form and poor posture, a lot of times because of their pain. If you have a a backache, you may be leaning forward um, and, and kind of hunching or, or guarding. So yoga and Tai Chi will help strengthen muscles and restore muscle balance to the body as well as help people deal with, deal with pain. Now, again, with yoga and Tai Chi, not everybody can do it. They're, the doctor, a, a doctor should probably clear a patient who is reporting chronic pain. Biofeedback helps because people can start noticing their HPA axis activation and respond with relaxation exercises. When you feel pain, guess what? Your heart rate goes up. That HPA axis kicks off because your body's going, okay, pain is telling us something is wrong. When people notice that, then they can start going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit of pain. Let me do something to help myself relax. One of the easiest forms of biofeedback is a heart rate monitor. And some of, I haven't found a wrist-based one that will, that you can set to notice small changes, but chest strap heart rate monitors can tell you when you are 
out of zone so you can set it for a relaxed zone and then if your heart rate starts going up otherwise there are lots of different methods of biofeedback out there that can be more expensive but they can be extremely useful relaxation training no matter whether the pain is musculoskeletal nerve or headache when we have pain we typically tense up most of the time we're not going to be relaxed we may be tossing and turning and trying to get comfortable and it's just not helping when we are in pain our hpa axis is activated which means our serotonin is low when serotonin is low our pain threshold is lower so if we are helping people learn how to relax then they can let go of some of the muscle tension which may be exacerbating their pain they can reduce their hpa axis activation which can increase serotonin and help them feel a little bit better mindfulness helps people be aware in the moment of what they need if you are sitting at your desk and you're working i'm guilty of this so i'm using this example example a lot and you're working and you are being mindful of how you feel then you will notice when your shoulder starts to kink up and you can start doing some of that stuff um, and with biofeedback relaxation training is one intervention for biofeedback if you're using other forms of biofeedback that notice muscle tension then you may do something else such as um, massaging that area or whatever the physical therapist tells you to do it the intervention for the biofeedback really depends cognitive behavioral therapy which is what we're going to talk about a lot today addresses thoughts behaviors and emotions so cbt we generally talk about cbt and cognitive distortions and that's it but we're missing the whole behavioral component of it we want to help people see how changing their thoughts or their behaviors can impact their feelings and well how all three of those things impact one another interestingly observable behaviors like grimacing sighing or limping are often socially reinforced and can lead to increased self-perceptions of pain we do want to help people become aware of their behaviors so they're not getting that reinforcement negative thoughts and emotions can lead to increased pain perception if people are scared or anxious about their pain it can cause them to focus on it more which can cause it to feel like it's hurt hurting more acceptance and commitment therapy aims to develop a greater greater psychological flexibility and help people learn to live in the end you know you've heard me talk about that before act accepts the fact or puts out the fact that pain is a part of life we're going to have pain sometimes it's realizing that we can have pain and a rich and meaningful life at the same time that is important especially if you've got chronic pain you have to arrive at that place where you can accept that you can have chronic pain and you can manage it you know you're never may never be pain free again and you can have a relatively high quality of life and hypnotherapy is also a treatment option that a licensed hypnotherapist can can use so your theoretical components you have your behaviors your thoughts your emotions in the given situation and they're all bi-directional so your behavior can impact the situation if you have a bad attitude or for example if you've got chronic pain and you decide you know what i'm not going to move then that behavior will impact the situation because it will make 
the pain worse. Um, your situation can impact your thoughts. If you have pain, you can wake up and you can go, oh, I hurt today. I always hurt. I'm frustrated. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless, which increases depression, which affects your emotion. Your emotions may, when, it, when depression is increased, you may start feeling fatigued and like you don't want to get out of bed, which means you may not move, which means your pain may get worse. And you can just you know, put a, plug in all kinds of variables into this and see how everything people do can impact their pain. But the good thing is everything they do for the positive can impact their pain. So if they do positive behaviors, if they have learned optimism, if they have accurate cogn cognitions, then they can improve their, potentially improve their situation. So the example that was given in the text, when pain is experienced, a person may feel discouraged and frustrated and think, if I do anything today, I'm just going to hurt more. So I'll avoid moving for the rest of the day. When they avoid moving, then we stiffen up and it can cause more pain and fatigue. Factors maintaining pain. There are biological factors. Your neurotransmitter levels, whatever is, you know, might be causing the pain, those uh, nociceptive sensors that are... Um, misfiring, the muscle tear, whatever it is. There's a lot of things that can, biologically, that can maintain pain. Some can be addressed, some can't. Psychological factors maintain pain. When people focus on their pain, when they have negative pain, self-efficacy, we'll talk about a lot about those. And then social factors maintaining pain. People that are in environments where their loved ones are overly solicitous of their pain and cater to their every need may focus more on their pain and may feel more pain and more helplessness uh, likewise people who are in environments where people don't want to others don't want to hear about their pain they can feel misunderstood and unheard and withdraw and not feel like they're getting any support which again can contribute to pain with regard to um, pain that has no known cause, that's still chronic pain. We're talking about chronic pain here. Sometimes it's idiopathic. We don't know. For the longest time, they couldn't prove or disprove somebody had fibromyalgia, and now they found ways to do that. We've recognized that, you know, it is real pain. If the person is experiencing pain, then it's real to them, regardless of whether the medical community can find a reason for it. Psychological factors associated with pain. Pain cognitions. Negative cognitions and beliefs about pain, including catastrophizing, can lead to maladaptive coping, exacerbation of pain, increased suffering, and greater disability. If people are thinking, I'm in pain, I'm always going to be in pain, it really has a negative impact on them. Negative affect. The relationship between pain and negative affect is complex and bidirectional. The more pain goes up, generally the worse the affect gets. Um, and the worse the affect gets, the more pain seems to increase, whether it's because serotonin is lower and the HPA axis is higher and muscle tension is higher. They're not sure exactly why, but there is a bidirectional relationship. Hurt versus harm. When pain is interpreted as evidence of further damage to tissue rather than an ongoing stable problem that may improve, individuals with chronic pain report higher pain sensitivity regardless of whether the pain, whether the damage is actually occurring. If somebody has 
abdominal pain and you know, it's hurting and it continues to hurt. And because it continues to hurt, they think, you know, this, this tumor I have or whatever must be growing at an exponential rate. Then they're going to notice that pain and often report increases in pain because of their perception of what may be going on. Answer seeking. Failing to accept the offered cause of pain or being unwilling to accept that a source of pain cannot be determined can lead to increased distress and pain intensity. If you've got a pain and you know it's there and it's real and it hurts and it hurts really bad and doctors are telling you, you know, we've run all these tests. I have no idea. There's nothing wrong on your x-rays or your blood tests or anything. I can't tell you what's causing the pain. Then people may start feeling very frustrated and helpless be and hopeless because they're like, well, I've got this pain. And if you can't figure out what's causing it, then you can't figure out how to fix it. That can lead them to start going to multiple doctors and trying to get multiple tests just to come up with potentially the same result that there is no actual cause that they can find right now. Doesn't mean you're not in, it doesn't mean the person is not in pain. It just means that um, the, doc the doctors can't find a reason for that. Pain self-efficacy is the level of confidence that some degree of control can be exerted over the pain. This is really important. When we feel like we have some control over our pain, then it's more tolerable. When we feel like we have some control over our health, then it seems more tolerable. When we get sick, if we know that, okay, you know, if I just wait it out in 10 days, this virus will be gone, there, people tend to be able to muddle through a little bit better than if they're sick and they're like, I don't know when I'm going to feel better. We want to help people reconceptualize pain and move from a view of pain as purely sensory or biomedical, something they're feeling and being caused by their body, to more multidimensional, to recognize the impact that their behaviors, their thoughts, and their emotions have on their perception of pain and their pain threshold. And a lot of times I talk about pain threshold because when I say perception of pain to people, sometimes they'll look at me and they'll go, so you're saying that it's not really there and it's all in my head. No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what you feel at any given moment, which is why I like the word threshold a little bit better. Those social factors we already talked about, a solicitous significant other can increase patients' report of pain. Those reports of pain are getting reinforced. If somebody's overly solicitous, then the person may not be moving much, which may be contributing to the pain. An increase in social interactions that focus on the individual's attention, that focus the individual's attention away from pain and onto different topics or activities can be really helpful here. So a solicitous significant other can say, you know what, I hear you're really hurting today. Maybe it would help if we got up and went on a walk. Maybe it would help if we did, you know, did something else in order to help the person distract themselves. You know, if you had a broken bone or a toothache or anything, when you sit there and you focus on your pain, it becomes, it feels like it becomes stronger. Helping people get up, implement their treatment plan, move around, distract themselves some, can help them, number one, feel a little bit better because they might get some pleasure out of whatever they're doing, but it also distracts them from their pain.
Punishing responses from the social environment involve either angry or ignoring responses, each aimed at limiting expressions of pain. This can result in the person being very loud and dramatic about their pain. You need to listen to me. You do not understand how much this hurts. Or they may just become stoic and resigned because they're like, it doesn't matter what I say. Nobody understands how much this hurts. So whatever. Those behavioral factors we've already touched on a little bit. Guarding. I hurt my shoulder um, last year. And... I noticed that I guarded it. You know, when I'd go to pick up a plate to put on one of the one of the machines at the gym, I would pick it up with my left hand. I wouldn't use my right hand. Uh, when I would carry my purse, I carry it on my left side, not my right side. Guarding like that can lead to muscle imbalance. It can lead to tension in the other side. It can lead to cascade effects. If you're guarding and, and hunching, then it's over overstretching the back and over tightening the front. It can lead to lots of different imbalances musculoskeletal, musculoskeletally. Resting and underactivity can be a problem, like I've talked about a bunch already. If you've ever been, had an injury or, or something and been stuck sitting, you just couldn't move for some reason, and you got up to go to the bathroom, and you were just so stiff. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, my body's kind of frozen in the position it was in. Well, multiply that times about 10, and you can see how the problem might become exacerbatory, if that's a word, uh, with chronic pain, because people may just not want to move because it hurts when they do. I know that's one of the reasons I am really bad, I'll admit, about actually doing my physical therapy exercises. <laughs> Whoops. And overactivity is just as much of a problem. P some people go, you know what? I don't care. My back hurts. I'm going to push through the pain. I've got stuff to do today. Well, that could make the injury worse. That could make whatever the problem is worse, which means it's important to pay attention to pacing. We are going to talk about that in a minute. The impact of pain emotionally, depression, hopelessness and helplessness, anxiety about what's causing the pain and if you'll ever be pain-free. Anger and frustration that you can't do the things that you want to do or you used to be able to do. Guilt for not being able to do the things that you used to do or you want to be able to do. You know, pretty much any of those dysphoric emotions, maybe even resentment for people not understanding your pain or resentment towards the people to, or the situation that caused your pain. Lots of those dysphoric emotions. Cognitively. Pain can impact our ability to concentrate. If you've ever tried to concentrate with an earache or a toothache or when you're in labor, it ain't going to happen. Pain can affect our ability to concentrate and problem solve. And one of the ways to regulate emotions is problem solving. So if we're not able or we're having difficulty concentrating and problem solving, then it's, it's going to contribute potentially to exacerbation of pain. Physically, pain ramps up the HPA axis, the threat response system, because the body knows that something is amiss. It can cause secondary problems, you know, other aches and pains and what have you. Weight gain is another thing that can be caused by chronic pain. And activities of daily living can be impacted. If 
I, I uh, ruptured a tendon in my finger one time and I had a cast on it. I never knew how hard it was to wash my hair one-handed until I couldn't get that hand wet. We want to think broadly about how this pain is impacting the person. What does it make it difficult for them to do? Uh, people who have back pain or knee pain have difficulty getting up and down the stairs. They have difficulty getting into lower cabinets in the kitchen or in the bathroom. We use we put a lot of stuff in lower cabinets, so there are a lot of potential impacts of pain. Interpersonally, some people with pain get grumpy and irritable, and rightly so. You know, I understand when you're in a lot of pain, it's hard to be in a good mood. Some people withdraw. Some people tend to be very needy and demonstrative of their pain, which can push other people away. Pain can have negative effects on relationships. And occupationally, it, sometimes chronic pain means you've got to get a different assignment at your job or get a different job altogether. Sometimes pain slows your productivity or the quality of your work at whatever you're doing. Um, think about basketball players. You know, if they're in chronic pain, they have a, a knee injury or a back injury, they're not going to be able to shoot, uh, you know, free throws or whatever nearly as well. It is important to focus on some of those things. And yes, um, you raise a good point that people in nursing homes, a lot of people who are elderly, because our body starts wearing down and some of those joints, you know, arthritis develops and different spine conditions, they may have a lot of low-grade chronic pain, which can tend to make people a little more irritable. So we need to hear this. And if they are have limited mobility, then they may be in, as Melissa points out, um, they may be in a wheelchair or unable to get around by themselves, and so they're not moving as much, which, and that sedentariness can contribute to a lot of other physical pain, problems, aches, pains, and disruption of the circadian rhythms, which means you're not going to get as good as sleep. That's a whole different class that I would love to do, but I'm going to move on right now. So our chronic pain cycle, the person has some sort of pain, distress or disability, that is chronic, which can lead to decreased activity, which leads to deconditioning. You, know, you get stiff, you lose your range of motion, your muscles get weak, low cardiovascular. Then you start feeling, people can start feeling depressed and anxious and hopeless and helpless because they can't move around like they used to. They may start avoiding others, withdrawing from activities they used to do, so they're not getting as much pleasure out of life, which can increase their distress and their disability. The chronic pain experience is kind of unique. Those who struggle with chronic pain and associated functional impairments, like inability to wash your own hair, may feel frustrated and disappointed that they have not received the answers regarding the cause of their pain or effective treatments. Uh, my grandmother, before she passed, had um, a problem with her spine, and she had radiating pain down her right hand, and it got to the point she couldn't wash her hair. She couldn't hold her coffee with her right hand. There were a lot of things she couldn't do, and they knew the cause of the pain, but there was no effective treatment for her at her age. It was just too risky to do some of the surgeries. People with chronic pain often feel as if they have not been heard and complain that doctors have not taken the time to listen and understand. 
which oftentimes is true. A lot of doctors are more than happy to write you a script for a muscle relaxant or send you off to get an x-ray, but they aren't listening to the magnificent impact that this pain is having on your life and how frustrating it is. So sometimes people just need to be validated. Let's let them know we understand. It's not just that your knee hurts. There's a whole lot more that goes into it. Some people also feel that they've been treated as if they're crazy and the pain is all in their head because the doctors can't find a reason for it. It's pain. If the person is perceiving pain, then their body is responding with a ramped up HPA axis. Their neurotransmitters are responding with a stress response. It's pain. Depending on, you know, the person, the interventions are going to be different. But if they're feeling pain, it's real. It's real to them, so it's real. Others may feel they've been unjustly labeled as drug-seeking when they're only looking for a way to feel better, especially now. And I won't get on my soapbox about opioids, but with the FDA getting in there and really cutting, putting strict restrictions on opioid use and things, some people are cautious and even going to the doctor. I called the doctor the other day. I needed a refill on a, on a prescription, and they... Uh, the woman who answered the phone, she's like, well, what kind of medication is it? Because there are lots of medications that we just don't refill. And I'm like, you know, number one, I don't need to tell you that. And number two, why don't we let the doctor make that decision? It wasn't an opioid. It wasn't a stimulant. Um, but just the fact that she was so abrupt and condescending, and I'm like, I was just trying to make an appointment. We really need to be conscious of how we come off to people because there are people who need certain types of medications. There are people who need benzos. There are people who need to stay on opioids, especially if you're working with a veteran population that may have, they may have some severe chronic pain that is not manageable any other way. Factors such as these may cause those with chronic pain to present at the initial session with us with doubts that anything will help. They're there. They're resigned. They're like... This ain't going to do anything. I'm here, but I don't think you're going to be able to help me. We need to remember that pain is emotional and physical and social and interpersonal. It, it affects every area of life. Many people expect to rely on passive treatment that provide rapid relief like drugs, surgery, injections, chiropractics, or massage. Well, those can help sometimes, but at 2 in the morning... You're not going to be able to find a chiropractor to, you know, work his magic to make your pain go away. It is really important that we emphasize the benefits of self-managed active approaches. What did your doctor say would help with this? What types of things are you cleared to do to manage this pain on your own at 2 in the morning? What interventions do you have? Keep a list of those things on the refrigerator or wherever they need to so they can refer to it. Develop a list of active approaches such as stretching, relaxation, hot and cold therapy, guided imagery, alternate focus, using a TENS unit, using one of those massage pads, anything that works for them, have them put that on the list. Sometimes people are have changing or vague complaints. Sometimes it's because they're more comfortable focusing on somatic rather than emotional complaints. We need to ferret that out. If their uh, pain seems to 
be the focus of treatment when it seems like their anxiety is really going up. We need to look and help them see the connection between their pain and their anxiety. As treatment progresses, complaints may change. If their back pain, for example, is lessened, then they may notice other pain issues more. If their back's not hurting as much, then all of a sudden they're noticing, you know what, my knee hurts now, my shoulder, and this and that. Well, it's possible. You know, it's possible that you've got some misalignment. It's possible those pain, that pain was always there. You just didn't notice it because the back pain was so much stronger. Okay. We want to help them embrace the dialectic. We want to help them focus on the fact that, hey, my back is feeling a lot better. Score. And the fact that because their back is feeling better, they're able to notice other things. That's good. We also want them to use the tools that they used to address their back pain or whatever the original big pain was, how can you use those tools to address these other pains, you know, stretching, hot and cold, etc. When the location of the pain shifts, it is important to have them have their new pain evaluated by a doctor. We don't know if there's something physiological that needs to be attended to. Redirect them to that primary pain to help them notice the improvements. Remind them of strategies that they used to manage the original pain and apply those to the new pain. And identify cognitive, emotional, or behavioral issues contributing to what's going on, contributing to the new pain or the vague pain and effective solutions. So if they have this vague report that, you know, I'm just feeling more exhausted all the time or I'm just feeling icky all the time now, what we, one of the things that we really want to do is talk to them about what has changed that you know, three weeks ago you weren't feeling as bad and now you're feeling worse? What's changed between three weeks ago and now? And how, how might that be contributing to you feeling worse? When complaints are vague, it may be counter-therapeutic to focus on them. You can also consider using a transdiagnostic approach and identifying possible HPA axis-related issues. So if somebody says, I'm, oh, I'm feeling tired all the time, we might want to say, you know what, that may be your body trying to re repair itself. You know, obviously, have you talked with your doctor about this? Um, let's see what things, when you're not feeling tired, I always focus on the solutions. When you're not feeling tired, what's different? And how can we make that happen? Or what do you think is contributing to this? If I'm going to focus on it. But a lot of times, if it's just a vague complaint that they mention in passing, let it pass. If it's important or if it's really problematic, they'll bring it up again. In the assessment and interview, get a pain rating, the frequency, intensity, and duration of their pain and the type. A lot of times um, in, in JCO accredited organizations, you also need to get the type, whether it's tingling, burning, achy, whatever. Get the pain rating. The pain catastrophizing scale is available and assesses people's tendency to ruminate, magnify, and feel helpless about their pain. That one can be helpful to use. You also want to assess interference of pain in various areas such as socialization, work, daily activities, and relationships with others, including their family and marital relationships. Pain, even if it's, you know, impacting their social relationships, it may be impacting their, their family and marital relationships in other ways. We do want to be cognizant of that. Access the existence and severity of depression and anxiety symptoms, which have a high co-occurrence with pain. Assess perception of quality of life regarding physical health, mental health, relationships, and their environment.
how are things going? Do you have a good quality of life right now? Generally, they're going to say no um, because they wouldn't be in, your, in their office, in your office, if they thought they were. However, we want to figure out which ones are worse and what threads we can pull to help them start feeling better. And gather treatment plans and releases of information from other medical providers. So you can talk with a physical therapist, you can talk with the doctor, you can talk with the nutritionist, whomever you need to talk to. Identify times when the pain is better. Most people don't have pain 24-7 all the time unless they just had surgery. When is the pain better, even if it's just a little bit better? And what are you doing or not doing during those times? That's good to know. That's good information. What strategies do you use that help you reduce the pain? You know, sometimes if you've got a headache, maybe a cold compress helps. What is it that works for you? That's good information to have. Let's put that down. Identify triggers and exacerbators of pain. What makes your pain worse? I know I get more headaches when I'm stressed because I grind my teeth. So if I wear my splint at night, then I wake up and my jaw's not sore. So, you know, knowing that, I, can, I know that that's something that I can use to control chronic pain. Set goals with them. Being smart, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-limited. Relevant is really important. What do they see is important right now, and how are these interventions relevant to what helping them reduce their pain? You know, you don't want to just say, well, let me give you a book about depression without making it relevant to them. Um, reduce the negative impact of pain on daily life is one of the goals for CBT for uh, chronic pain. As evidenced by, AEB stands for as evidenced by. I always have my clinicians put that in their treatment plans. What is it going to look like when the negative impact of pain is eliminated? Improve physical and emotional functioning as evidenced by. You know, that is going to look different for every single person that walks into your office. So what is it going to look like when that person is, has improved physical and emotional functioning? Increase effective coping, coping for pain as evidenced by, and reduce pain intensity, as evidenced by. How are you going to know when your pain is less? A lot of times this is keeping daily logs of their pain and intensity and duration and those sorts of things. But those are things that are important to identify in goal setting. Physical activation and pacing. It's important to use thoughtful approaches to activities like spring cleaning. If you've got a bad back, a lot of people do, so it's a good example. If you're having a good day, then pace yourself and maybe do a couple of rooms. Don't plan on, oh, I'm feeling good today, so let me clean the whole house. Pace yourself. Do a little bit. If you wake up the next day and you feel, still feel good, then you can do a little bit more. It's important not to overdo it. But, but use, your, use your intellect. If you're feeling good, then do a little bit. If you're not feeling good, then relax. Use tracking logs for activity, duration, intensity, and the pain before, immediately after, and before bed. Sometimes right after you do something, it doesn't hurt so much, but then by the time you get to bedtime, you're like, oh, that was a mistake, or vice versa. It's not hard to make those little logs. People can rank on a scale of one to five. Bada bing, done really fast. Increase motivation for implementation of their physical therapy plan by using decisional balance exercises. Avoiding activity, educate them, that avoiding activity increases pain over time because of decreased flexibility and stamina, 
increased weakness and fatigue and spasms from tight muscles. These things, you know, all of those things combine to cause increased risk of energy, weight, increased risk of injury, weight gain, which adds stress to the body, as well as feelings of sadness, guilt, frustration, or boredom, which often enc encourages social withdrawal, which can intensify feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, and isolation. It's important to encourage people to take breaks based on how much time um, they've worked, not based on how much they've accomplished. So, for example, if they're spring cleaning, instead of saying, I'm, I need to get my bedroom cleaned out today, say, I'm going to work for an hour because that gives them time. It may take them seven hours to clean their bedroom, and that may be way too much. So do it based on how much time you, you have worked. Take breaks before the pain begins to increase, not after it gets bad. If you notice you're starting to get twingy, that's the time to take a break. And practice makes perfect. People need to know and learn how their body responds. Sometimes they're going to feel like they stopped when they should have, and actually it wasn't overdoing it. And then they're going to be, oh, the next morning. Okay, you know, learn, live and learn. So next time you got to quit sooner. Or maybe they stopped when they started feeling a little twingy and they felt great the next day and they're like, oh, I could have done three more hours. Well, live and learn. You have to learn what your body is capable of. Relaxation techniques such as deep breathing, progressive muscular relaxation, guided imagery, and laughter can all help trigger that relaxation response and some of those endorphins. Deep breathing, when we slow our breathing, it slows our heart rate. When we slow our heart rate, our body goes, hey, it's time to relax. So all of those relaxation chemicals are released. That's a good thing. Progressive muscular relaxation really focuses going muscle group by muscle group on noticing the difference between tense and relaxed. It increases awareness and mindfulness of muscle tension, but it also helps people relax a little bit. Tensing and relaxing muscles actually brings blood to those areas, which loosens them up. Think of cold muscles like taffy out of the refrigerator. And once you've tensed them and relaxed them a couple of times, it's kind of like warmed up taffy and it's more flexible. Guided imagery. Imagine feeling the pain relax. Envision feeling the color red over that spot. And that red is warm and that red is heating. Um, you can also envision you've got a guardian angel that's massaging the knots out or whatever you want to envision. There are a lot of guided imagery scripts and suggestions uh, for pain management. And laughter. I put that under relaxation because laughter helps us release endorphins. A good belly laugh can help people divert their focus from their pain and also feel less tension. Pair relaxation with daily activities. So you make sure you do it every single day. Use a relaxation app to guide you through if you need to. Add relaxation minutes throughout the day to prevent muscle tension buildup. Set a timer on your watch or whatever to notify you every hour or two hours to spend 15, 20 seconds deep breathing or doing some sort of relaxation, being mindful of your posture in order to prevent some of that tension buildup during the day. Obstacles. Some people say, you know what, I'm in too much pain to relax. Just forget about it. 
help people realize the bidirectional pain scale. The more they resist relaxing, the more tense they get, the worse their pain is going to get. Therefore, it's beneficial to at least try to relax. And ACT can be really helpful helping them unhook from this thought that I can't relax. They can have the thought that they can't relax. Well, that replace that thought with the thought that they're going to try to relax. Some people say, I have to keep moving. I can't relax. If I stop, then I stiffen up right away and it hurts so much to start again. Well, if you keep moving too much, you may overdo it. Other people will say, I relax all the time and it doesn't do any good. Relaxing is different than resting or lounging. Relaxing is a mindful, conscious activity to slow the heart rate, to slow the breath, and to relax the muscles and get the body more in alignment. Pleasant activities. We want to educate people about the benefits of pleasant activities, which include distraction, improved mood, socialization, and enhanced sense of direction and efficacy. It gives them something to look forward to. Um, my, my stepfather loves to play golf. That's a pleasant activity for him, for him. And he's, you know, he's 87. He's got pain here and there and everywhere pretty much every morning. But staying moving helps him. And knowing that he's going to get to go out and play golf every day helps him have a sense of direction and a reason to get out of bed. And it distracts him when he's out there. You know, he's talking with his buddies, whatever. Have people make a list of their pleasant activities. Encourage daily engagement to make life worth living despite their pain. So do something that's pleasant every single day. And we should take that to heart and do it ourselves. And encourage positive journaling or meditation. Have them spend 10 to 20 minutes each day either writing or thinking about nothing but all the positive things that happened that day. It can help people get in a different mindset. And there are a lot of apps out there, like uh, Lori points out, the Calm app can be very useful. There are several CBT-oriented apps and relaxation-oriented apps that are free in the App Store. I encourage you to check them out. Sleep is another thing we need to educate people about. The importance of sleep for regulating circadian rhythms, for keeping our neurotransmitters in balance, and for reducing the pain intensity or increasing the pain threshold. So discuss sleep hygiene with your clients and make a sleep plan. You can look at the uh, video on our YouTube channel, All CEUs Education. It's called The Effective Sleep on Mood, and it goes through a lot of the sleep hygiene practices. Cognitive strategies, identifying, understanding, monitoring, and addressing automatic negative thoughts, or ANTS, and how they impact the pain experience. They're automatic negative thoughts about the problem. You know, and it's never going to get better. I'm always going to be in pain. About the functional impact of their problem. I am so useless since I can't do X, Y, Z anymore. Or about their ability to impact their pain levels. Nothing I do will ever help make this pain any better. There are a lot of different areas to look for automatic negative thoughts. We're going to go through a few. Catastrophizing. Oh my gosh, it's a tumor. I'm going to die. Or, this will end my career and I will be totally unemployable. Well, we want to help them counter um, cognitive distortions with helpful thoughts. And we're going to get to some worksheets in a second. Emotional reasoning. I'm scared about what's causing the pain, so it must be bad. It's, you know, 
I feel scared, therefore the world must be coming to an end. Overgeneralization. I can't play ball with my son anymore, so I'm a terrible parent. You know, for somebody who's had a rotator cuff injury, for example. All or nothing thinking. If I have pain, my life is miserable. If I don't have pain, then my life is good. Well, there's, there's some middle ground there. I am always in pain. Notice the always word. Or I am never comfortable. We do want to help them identify exceptions to these things. Minimization of the positive. Yeah, my back's feeling better, but I'm sure it won't last. Well, let's revel in the fact that it's feeling good right now. Mind reading. My kids hate me because I can't do the things with them that I used to. That's that guilt coming out. Jumping to conclusions. If I have pain now, you know, two months after the surgery, I am always going to have pain, assuming that it's never going to get any better. Using the mental filter, just looking around, I'm in a negative mood, so nobody understands. Control fallacies. I have no control over my pain or the way it impacts my life. Well, you have some control, and that's where we really want to go back to that model of the thoughts, behaviors, emotions, and the situation. You may not be able to change the situation, but there you can change those other three. Or the other side, they say, if I just do this, whatever this is, then the pain will go away. I have ultimate control. Well, that probably doesn't exist either. So we want to help people find the reality in there. Have participants list their automatic negative thoughts as they relate to their pain, their relationships because of their pain. So what are their automatic... You know, like the one about my kids hate me because I can't do the things with them I used to. The probability of treatment success. What are their automatic thoughts about their belief, regarding their beliefs about treatment success? And their quality of life. You know, my life sucks because I'm always in pain. Well, that's an automatic negative thought. We want to have them list those and identifying them. They get that list. And you can do this in a group and you can fill up a whiteboard if you want to, if you're, not, if you're doing group activities. Set up a chart. Or give each person a chart and have them categorize their automatic negative thoughts. So if they have a thought that's catastrophizing, they put that thought there and then they identify an alternate thought and you know, give them plenty of room to write and have them do this worksheet so they can really start seeing what they're telling themselves and how it's affecting themselves. And they can identify these alternate thoughts and they can review those alternate positive thoughts. During the week... As people are going about their day, have them keep a log of their automatic negative thoughts and alternate more helpful thoughts that they replaced it with. Encouraging them to become mindful when they have an automatic thought to replace it with something more helpful. Eventually, hopefully, the alternate thoughts will become the automatic thoughts. Encourage them to review their helpful thoughts at the beginning and end of each day to remind themselves that, you know, if they say, you know, my kids hate me because I can't do what I used to. What's their alternate, more helpful thought? My kids are disappointed that I can't do what I used to with them. However, we still can have fun going to the movies or how, whatever their thought is. Cognitive strategies. Encourage people to challenge their negative thoughts by asking, is this 100% true and factual? Do I know that this is 100% factual? Am I using automatic negative thoughts? Is there a different way to look at this? What would I tell a close friend if they had this thought? Is this thought helpful to me? If I have this thought that 
it might be a tumor and I'm going to die. Is this thought helpful to me? Well, probably not. Not until you get the results back from your doctor and you can figure out what to do. Wor holding that thought and worrying isn't going to be overly helpful. Is there evidence that I'm not taking into account? Well, maybe the doctor has already told you it's probably nothing. You know, I really want you to get this test run anyway, just, you know, to be doubly sure. But, you know, and even if it is something, there are a million treatments that can make it go away. But the person is hearing, you need to get this extra test because I don't know what's going on. So in encourage them to figure out the evidence. when If they get a diagnosis of something, you know, like fibromyalgia, do their research. Find out what treatments that are out there that can help people feel better. Do their research to find out about other people with fibromyalgia who have gone on to live high-quality lives. Motivational enhancement. You know, when people are in pain, it's hard to get motivated. So provide them feedback about their condition. You know, you've got all those reports from the doctor. Provide them feedback about what they are... Um, what's going on with them, what their medical tests say, what the doctor says, what, how it's impacting their life, you know, the assessment, give them some very objective feedback. Put the responsibility for change on their shoulders. They have to be the ones that are willing to implement the treatment plans to change their behaviors, to address their thoughts, and, you know, start making progress. We don't usually give advice, but, you know, we can Point them in the right direction if there are things that they may need to educate themselves about. Encourage them to develop a menu of options for ways to handle their pain and alternate helpful thoughts and whatever other things that can be useful for managing their behaviors, their thoughts, or their emotions. Be empathetic. You know, sometimes people just need to have that pain validated. And be supportive. If they come in and they go, you know, this was a really bad week, okay, let's talk about that. Or, you know, provide encouragement if they come in and they go, oh, this was, I had a really good week. Okay, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's revel in this, in this good week that you had. So cognitive behavioral therapy addresses both thoughts and behaviors. We need to help people learn about their body and pain, how over or under activity can make their pain worse, and pacing about sleep hygiene and the importance of sleep in regulating their circadian rhythms, in maintaining their mood, and in helping them, you know, not feel fatigued, which can be attributed to their pain. Help them identify what aspects of their pain they can control. Help them learn about how pain impacts their mood and how their mood impacts their pain. So they start recognizing that, you know, when I'm angry and I'm, you know, tensed up, it's going to make my pain worse. Go figure. Um, and when I'm, but when I'm happy and I'm relaxed and I've got endorphins and high serotonin, my pain threshold is higher and life is good. Help them learn relaxation strategies and talk to them about all of the non-pharmacological methods to address their pain that either we discussed today or their doctor discussed with them. And then finally, identify cognitive distortions and help people develop alternate helpful thoughts because a lot of what's going on by the time they get to counseling for chronic pain issues they've been experiencing chronic pain for a while so there's probably a lot of automatic negative thoughts and helplessness and disempowerment in there that we may need to help them take a look at and figure out what they want to do with it um 
so there were a couple things in the chat room I saw as we were going through for religious clients sometimes prayer can be useful sometimes it can be helpful sometimes people can view pain as God punishing them we do want to potentially explore the inner interaction or relationship between people's pain and their spirituality if they don't believe in a higher power if they don't believe in prayer okay that's cool if they do then it might be helpful for some people praying can be very helpful for some people you know saying a rosary it's very meditative and can help relax and generate that uh, sense of calm there's a lot of guided imagery that can be used around spirituality too it just depends on what the person is comfortable with and when pain doesn't go away there are ways to help people if they are spiritual um, obviously many of us will feel more comfortable referring people to a religious advisor however we can talk with them about you know what they perceive that means if their pain doesn't go away what do they perceive that means are they being punished are they being tested are and you know you go back to the book of job and you know that was a book about suffering and and testing job wasn't being punished for anything at all but it depends on people's philosophical um, understanding of what that pain means to them and potentially exploring alternate explanations for you know what it might mean for cognitive behavioral therapy CBT CP um, the protocol that the VA uses is 12 sessions now it's possible to use more than that or potentially even fewer than that but 12 is usually a pretty good benchmark for um, cognitive behavioral approaches if y'all don't have any other questions I'm gonna go ahead and just review really quick some information about pharmacological interventions this is not on your exam so if you want to go take your test and get on with your day that's fine if you want to stick around for this then it'll be short we talked a lot in the presentation about non-pharmacological interventions about tens units massage relaxation exercises cognitive interventions yada yada sometimes people need some sort of medical intervention and it's possible for a lot of people to get some relief from those the medical interventions often involve especially the the oral drug related interventions involve increasing serotonin increasing norepinephrine or increasing GABA we know that all three of these um, neurotransmitters impact one another and we know that all three of these neurotransmitters impact dopamine that being said if somebody has chronic pain and they already have you know an adequate level of serotonin for them whatever that looks like then taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors may cause agitation restlessness anxiety irritability it may make make them feel worse low serotonin is associated with a lower pain threshold it is something to consider a lot of antidepressants have been used for pain management same thing with norepinephrine high norepinephrine can cause agitation restlessness anxiety and irritability norepinephrine is also one of those chemicals that's released when the stress response system when the HPA axis is activated so if we're increasing that 
pharmacologically and the body already has high levels, then the person may feel exceptionally agitated. And GABA increases serotonin. GABA is our main relaxation response. It's kind of our natural volume. Those are important to know because most of the oral medications that we take, especially our opioids and our antidepressants, affect those neurotransmitters. Some of the medical pharmacological treatment options include NSAIDs, your ibuprofen and your naproxen and those sorts of things, your over-the-counter medications. Those can be helpful for some people. For others, it's not enough. You can move up to opioids, which we know have a high addictive potential and it's hard to get them um, and get, getting increasingly hard to get access to them. When people start taking opioids, within three to five days, the body starts adjusting to having opioids in their system, which means they're starting to become tolerant to those opioids, which means that eventually they're going to need an increased dose. When they stop taking opioids, when they're, when they're taking opioids, their body's not producing natural opioids or not as many. When they stop taking the opioids, their body's still not producing those natural opioids, which means their pain perception, their pain threshold, pain perception goes up, their pain threshold goes down. For a brief time, when they stop taking the opioids until their brain realizes, oh, you're not taking that oral medication anymore, I need to start producing opioids again. It's important to recognize and to educate patients if they're getting off of opioids, that they may have some rebound pain, they may have some rebound achiness for a brief period of time and to talk about it with their doctor. Tramadol or Ultram is a narcotic, it blocks pain receptors, and it releases serotonin and norepinephrine. I know I've had a lot of patients come through who've been on, on Tramadol. Topical analgesics, any of your rubs, your uh, Myoflex, your Icy Hot, any of those things help some people. Muscle relaxants is another category of oral medications that can help, especially if it's musculoskeletal pain because it causes the muscles in the entire body to relax. There is some risk of dependency with muscle relaxants. Adjuvant analgesics are medications that are intended for something else, but they found that, hey, this thing also helps with pain. Antidepressants are one example of adjuvant analgesics because they increase serotonin and norepinephrine. We're talking about your Cymbalta, your Effexor, and your Pamelor. Typically not your SSRIs. We're typically looking at your SNRIs um, or your uh, SSNRIs, your selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Another class of medications that has been shown to work with uh, pain or help with pain because it increases GABA levels are your anticonvulsants. Um, they're primarily used to relieve neuropathic pain or nerve pain, and they include gabapentin, uh, pre pregoblin, uh, which is Lyrica, topramate, and another one. <laughs> I can't pronounce. Anyway, those anticonvulsants can be very helpful for that nerve pain. Headache pain. People preventatively may take uh, propranolol, which is a beta blocker. It affects heart rate and those sorts of things. Or topramate, which affects GABA or both. Um, those can help prevent certain headaches. Abortive headache medicine, 
helps you, you know, kind of get rid of a headache when it, you notice it's starting, typically increase serotonin levels. And then rescue medications for headaches typically increase GABA le levels and also include Tylenol or acetaminophen and caffeine, which help reduce the pain associated with the headache. Rebound headaches may occur when excessive analgesics are taken for headache relief, leading to chronic daily headaches of a completely different type. Other treatment options, nerve blocks. They can go directly into where that nerve is and put a, um, inject a medication to block that nerve. Trigger point injections, another type of injection to, especially to relieve musculoskeletal pain. Radiofrequency ablation. They use high heat, they use an ultrasound that provi provides high heat, which destroys the nerve's ability to transmit pain. Well, if you're in enough pain, I can see where you might look for this. Botox has been found to be effective, especially for migraines. And some people, when other things have failed, have had a spinal cord stimulator implanted in order to address certain types of pain. Obviously, some of those latter things tend to be way more invasive, but again, depending on the intensity of the pain and the impact of the pain on the person's quality of life, sometimes people are really looking for pretty much any solution, and there's a lot of people out there who either don't want to take opioids just on principle or who have a history of addiction who don't want to take oral medications, muscle relaxants, or opioids that do look for alternative interventions that might be helpful. Alrighty, everybody, have an awesome weekend, and I will see you on Tuesday. Thank you to, for the people who stayed around for the uh, end part of that. Remember, for your test, all you've got to do is log into allceus.com, go into the classroom, and take your quiz. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.